Phil Hay Show. Welcome to the show. The Phil Hay Show is a podcast brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. My name's Dan Moylan. Phil Hay is here as well. Hello, everybody. And from The Square Ball, Michael Normanson. Hello. There's a 30-day free trial available on The Athletic, so you are all ready for when this football returns in the next week or so. Very much looking forward to that. You can also catch up with all the stuff Phil's written about, some of which we're going to be covering off in this show. You can get these podcasts ad-free, plus every single piece of football content and sports content from around the world that The Athletic has to offer. Head to theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. Doom, Phil. Doom. You bring us news of doom today. Jean-Kevin Augustin, bring us up to date if you can. I'm going to blame this one on Adam Forshaw, who was on the Leeds That podcast this morning and said, uh, and I quote, I'm convinced, I'm not just saying that, or being biased as we're all Leeds, there'll be no one as driven as us, and I know how we train behind closed doors. I think it's going to be a formality for us. That's my personal view. I think we'll romp it. Talking, of course, about promotion from the Championship. And then a few hours later, it turns out that Jean-Kevin Augustine has uh, done his hamstring again, recurrent to the, the injury that he had at the beginning of March. And I think we don't have a full diagnosis from Leeds at the moment, but um, from what I'm hearing, I think it's highly unlikely that we're going to see him at any point in these last nine games. It was unlikely that we were going to see him in the nine games as they'd been originally scheduled because he was in much the same situation, trying to get over that that hamstring pull. But knowing that when he did and, and when he got back to, to full training, he was going to have to do a fair amount of it and you know, a decent number of multiple sessions in order to be considered um, for, for a match day squad. And, and the same applies now. And because these nine games are now rammed into little over 30 days, it's, it's hard to see how he gets over this, uh, recovers from it fully and makes any impact before the season winds up. I mean, it's certainly a blow, isn't it? But we have been fine without him up to this point. So I think everyone's kind of, a little bit philosophical about this one in that we would have loved him there to fire in the goals but really we, we know that we can manage it without him as well you have this fairy tale thought of him scoring multiple times um, in, in the games that are left but then you revert to reality and you know that Bielsa will start with Patrick Bamford and will keep Bamford on the pitch as much as he can and a couple of weeks ago I did a, a, an analytical piece with Tom Orville at the Athletic and we were looking at Augustine's strengths and weaknesses didn't touch too much on, on the hamstring as we should have done but looking at what was good about him where he needed to improve how, how he might um, fit in and we did say in the piece that none of this necessarily applies to the back end of this season because even with him being 100% which he clearly isn't but if he was and if he was up to speed and if he was hitting all of Bielsa's mandatory targets it didn't seem likely or it didn't seem probable that he would get much time on the pitch if Bamford was playing well it didn't seem likely that if Bamford wasn't injured or suspended that there was any chance chance at all of, of Augustine starting any of the games. So whether or not it's really a setback in the grand scheme, I think is debatable just because there probably wasn't in, in Bielsa's mind that, that much motivation to use him heavily. Um, but it does just strip back the centre forward options down to Bamford and, and obviously Tyler Roberts as well, who, who to be fair to him was in, in good form before the season was suspended in March. He, he was looking as sharp as he had for a long time and, and was looking well worth the place on the bench. But it does mean that there isn't much in the way of of cover there that there isn't much in the way of a fallback if if Bamford is suddenly absent but it was ever thus with Bielsa and it's been that way right since the start and, and this is this is just him this is how he how he goes and and once again you're looking at fairly thin resources um in that particular area but I don't think it'll be stressing him out too much you mentioned when we were first signing him that this this deal's compulsory but only if he wants the deal is there any indication that he does still want the deal after this or is he going to this potentially going to make him think he's going to write the whole thing off as a bad job and try and get a move elsewhere 
It's a very good question. I think Leipzig certainly see this as an obligation if Leeds go up and, and they're expecting Augustine to leave them and, and to come to Ellen Road if Leeds are promoted. And that was certainly on the minds of Augustine and Leeds as well when the deal was done in January. To, just to go over all ground quickly, pretty much every striker they were looking at, the deal that was being discussed with their parent club was a loan to the end of the season with a chunky obligation. You know, in the case of Che Adams, he'd have been talking over £50 million as well. Obligation at the end of the season if Leeds were a, a Premier League side. With Augustine, from what I've been told at this end and from reading reports in Germany as well, it, you're looking around the £17, £18 million pound mark. But you have to ask the question, are Leeds going to get cold feet with this considering that his body hasn't held up too well to the strain that he's under with Bielsa. Is he going to get cold feet given that he's barely kicked a ball so far? He's had three substitute appearances. He's had two hamstring strains. He hasn't been able to get going and he hasn't been able to get anything like the football that he was he was craving when he was struggling to get in the team at, at Monaco. The one thing I would say on, on the upside and, and the one positive aspect of this is that I think there are plenty of examples at Leeds of players who have really benefited from a full pre-season under Bielsa and the ample examples there of players who have who have taken on the physicality of the Bielsa regime and have coped with it and have actually improved their, their conditioning no end. It does make me wonder though whether or not January transfers can ever really work with Bielsa unless they arrive in, in perfect shape and in, in tip-top condition because his squad are pushed so hard and, and they're in such good physical nick that it seems impossible to me to play catch up at that point. It seems impossible that you can come in in January cold without the, the same levels of conditioning and the, the same ability to cope with the intensity of it all. And to catch up and, and to, to kind of get to a level of parity with the other players who have acclimatised to it and, and are used to it. And it, it just makes me think that in order to thrive on the Bielsa or to thrive properly, you really do need to be there on, on the first day of pre-season. You need to be there from the start and you need your body to adapt and to change um, to cope with what it is that, that he asks of you. And, and maybe with hindsight, given how little Augustine had played at Monaco prior to coming to Leeds, maybe it was asking a bit too much of him to come in and do the, the cameos that Nketiah had been doing, given that Nketiah seemed to have settled so well into the squad. Well, we'll see how that one plays out. I guess it's just kind of finger in the air stuff, isn't it? We don't really know which way that one's going to go until uh, we know whether we're promoted or not. And well, the next nine games rest on that. And as we've said there, we've got a month basically to squeeze in all these games. The fixtures are now before us and they're pretty much as they were previously. We're on telly to begin with. No surprises there. No, and we'll be on telly regularly, um, I think, right right through to the, the end of the running. I, I was interested to see whether or not they kept the fixtures in the same order as they'd been on the, the original fixture list. And, I, and they have, and I think it's the right thing to do. I think from the perspective of integrity, which everybody keeps banging on about, I think it would have been wrong to have um, shuffled it up regardless of what the, the issues were with neutral venues or local authorities being happy or otherwise with, with staging games. And people will notice that there's no midweek game um, in the first week back. We've um, Leeds are away at Cardiff on Sunday the 21st and then at home to Fulham the following Saturday. And, and that is a, a, a bit of a sop to the clubs who were unhappy with the June 20th start. And we spoke last week about QPR um, being pretty vocally critical of the the decision to come back on that date and Sheffield Wednesday amongst others as well felt that it was a week too early so they've eased the pressure slightly by making sure that there isn't um, a midweek game at, at that point but it will be from the Fulham game onwards it will be um, Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, Tuesday right the way through to the, the 22nd of July um, when the season will finish midweek uh, home to, to Charlton and it is going to be very intense and I think it is going to be a, a big, big challenge for not 
just at Leeds, but across the championship for players' bodies to to hold up to this. I think there will be risk of injuries. There will be risk of soft tissue problems. But everybody can see what's at the end of it, and it is a very it's a very sharp period of games. But it is also very short, and it it does feel a little bit like blinking. You'll miss it. Michael, was it you that picked out the uh, the fact that we've got a lot of the home games midweek? It was, yeah, in the other podcast. I don't know if that was a slight advantage for us, although the talk of having to leave to go to Cardiff at four in the morning uh, perhaps undoes some of that good work. But I mean, surely that's not going to be the case, is it? No, they will find a solution and they're talking about a solution to make sure that they can go down on the Saturday and find accommodation pretty locally. We're still at a stage where you don't have hotels operating fully or, or even operating in the way that, that they would need to for people to use them, even in a kind of socially distanced way. But Leeds seem confident that they can find somewhere that will house them the night before. I think that has to happen, really, because like you say, if, if that isn't the case, then you will be looking at a very, very early morning departure. And as much as say even travelling to Derby or, or to Leicester for a, a Saturday three o'clock game going first thing in the morning is a definite shift away from what they're used to Leeds always go to a hotel the night before even for home games um, they'll stay over and, and then we'll, we'll travel to the ground the next day I think travelling like you say I don't think it would be 4am but it probably wouldn't be far off travelling at that time down to Cardiff is a huge disadvantage and is completely out of the ordinary um, in, in in a season which people are trying to finish in as normal a way as possible so I think they will be able to arrange that like we we're saying the, a lot of the home games and this is purely because of the fact that they did um, they did avoid scheduling a midweek game in, in the first week of, of the restart a lot of the home games are going to fall um, midweek in fact all of them aside from Fulham and I do think that is a potential advantage because you're not talking about any particularly long trips home late at night you're not talking about the I guess the, the bigger logistical issues of, of trying to get to these games and use hotels and find ways in which um, you, you're going to work in the way that you used to. It's not to say that it won't be a problem for the away games anyway, but I think Leeds will be pretty happy that most Tuesday nights they're going to be at Ellen Road as opposed to dotted around the country. Any word on the press conferences yet? Because I think we're all desperate to hear from Bielsa. You said you were last week you were looking forward to speaking to him, Phil. Any word on that and what form they might take? Could you imagine doing it via Zoom and how poor Diego Flores might try and navigate that? I think it will have to be done via Zoom. I'm, I'm not sure about the games themselves and we're still in the process of discussing media access to the games, the process when we're in, what PPE equipment we'll need and, and then obviously post-match as well. Zoom seems to me to be by far the, the safest and easiest way to do press conferences to avoid any kind of close-up interaction. And I would hope that we, w- we would get something or we would hear something from Bielsa next week. Again, we, we haven't got anything scheduled at the moment and we're waiting to hear. But there are two sides to it, really. I've missed hearing from him generally because he's always good to listen to and he always has something to say and he's always very thoughtful in what he does say. But also, I would like to hear his thoughts on specific issues, on the COVID testing, on the return to training, the, the amount of time that there's been between the return to Thorpe Arch and, and the resumption of games. Because it has to be said that while other clubs were, were kind of complaining about the June 20th date, Leeds were very happy with it and, and were very content. And I think felt that it might be a benefit to them because they, they thought the fitness levels were so high. And, and clearly after today as well, it would be nice to hear about Augustine and to see where exactly uh, the land lies with him and to find out the situation with the fitness of, of the rest of the squad, which from what I can gather is is good and, and there don't seem to be any other injury problems that we're aware of but I think everybody is kind of craving that is to hear him speak again and, and to hear his voice and I think that's probably the point at which everybody will feel like football's up and running again And the reason why we're here of course is because of the Covid lockdown and whilst Leeds will not comment on whether they've got any positive tests or not that's the policy they've adopted we're aware that there has been a positive test at the club Can you shed any more light on that Phil? 
There was at least one last week. I was told more than one, but the club haven't made any comment on that and I don't think had any further positive tests over the weekend. Um, these are coming fairly thick and fast, so we, we should be due another shortly because the, the protocol is to test twice a week. But I, I wasn't getting the sense that it caused any panic. I think they'd been very pleased that up until that point they'd, they'd been clear, um, they, they hadn't had any positive results and that it seemed like they'd, they'd been able to um, manage the training ground without infection spreading and, and without any severe problems. I think though when you look across the league, you're talking well into double figures now, the number of clubs who have had at least one positive COVID test. So it was I think we said on the podcast last last um, Wednesday as we were waiting for the um, waiting for the results to come that it's almost inevitable that most if not all clubs at some point are going to get hit with this. It's very difficult to dodge it completely. But as of the last count, you were talking two positive tests across the championship from well over a thousand. Uh, so the numbers are still very encouraging and, and also in the Premier League, there hasn't been a big spike there hasn't been a, a serious problem um, with the return to training the big name this week was Michael O'Neill at Stoke Stoke manager who had contracted it but again was was asymptomatic and it doesn't feel like any of this at the moment is threatening to derail things it doesn't feel as if these announcements or, or any of the positive tests are kind of pushing the EFL to the point of, of having to reconsider what they're doing. Everybody seems confident about this and, and everybody seems dead set on the, the June 20th start date. So yeah, there, there have been positive tests at Leeds and, and you can add them to the list. But again, no sense at all that it's really not them out of their stride. Of course, it's um, one of these things we're going to have to sort of gradually navigate with the return to training and they've only just started contact training again. And we know that friendlies are something that a lot of clubs want to do. We've seen one or two initial friendlies taking place. I mean, the one that drew my eye was Arsenal 6, Charlton 0. How are Leeds going to tackle this particular um, issue? They do want to, to play friendlies or at the very least to do in-house games, whether that's 11 v 11 amongst their own players or, or to bring in other clubs. I don't think they see it as essential that they do play other clubs. I think what they, they feel like they need is to make sure that they've had some form of game so the players get used to it. I mean, straight away last last week when they were given permission by the AFL to do contact training, there were two multiple sessions with Bielsa Thursday and, and Saturday. So I don't think in fitness terms and um, in stamina terms, they're going to be any way short. But I think they'd like the feeling of just getting back into the, the game routine um, and the, the kind of usual, the, the usual match routine that they have. So I think if they can line up friendlies against opposition, then they will. But certainly they've been talking as well about doing in-house games and, and the one thing about in-house games and we saw this with the, the proposed friendly between Manchester United and Stoke earlier this week is that it, it kind of avoids too much contact with um, external sides it avoids too much contact with other people who might be might be spreading COVID um, granted we're getting to the point where teams are going to be playing each other anyway so perhaps the, the point of that is is moot but all the same I think that there might be a feeling at Leeds that 11 v 11 behind closed doors would be as good for them as anything and gut feeling now then is this, is this one going to get to a conclusion this season. It feels like it, doesn't it? It does feel like it. I think we can safely say that it's going to start. Um, we've literally only got a week and a bit now to the Cardiff game and there doesn't seem to be anything obstructing that. That that, that to me was always the Oh, was it was always the, the kind of elephant in the room as people were talking about the resumption was are, are they going to come to obstacles that they can't clear at some stage and are things going to happen which just make a resumption completely impossible in the way that, that it kind of has in, in League One and, and League Two but it doesn't seem like that and I think well you wouldn't want to be presumptuous about them getting through nine games without any any problems or, or any other crises developing it, it certainly feels 100% like we will start away at Cardiff and League One and Two now done. League Two we knew about a couple of weeks back. League One has now joined that standpoint. They've voted to curtail the season. We've got the regular promotion and relegation worked out on that um, unweighted points per game. 
And I want to look, if we can, at the example of Peterborough, because Darren McAntony, their chairman, always very vocal on Twitter. He's quite forthright. They've missed out very narrowly on being uh, involved in the playoffs. And he was even convinced, because it was so tight at the top there, that only three points off the top, that they might have even got top two. And you wonder, is is legal action possible? Uh, Michael, I mean, as a fan, put yourself into the shoes of Peterborough's fans. How are you feeling? The League One situation is particularly brutal. In any other league, pretty much in any other season, you wouldn't expect to see this three points between eighth and second. It's it's a ridiculous tight situation. But the thing is, if the voting did not play, it has to be decided. And there's always that thing that every team that's in a decent position, like Coventry and Rotherham, will have no doubt, their fans will have no doubt been saying, there's absolutely no way we're letting this slip. It's absolutely right, we're promoted. Teams in the playoffs, a few, I suppose a few of them are thinking we might have gone on a run to go up. But essentially, no one assumes bad form do they, when they're working out how this season would have played out for them. Every team in the relegation zone thinks they would have got out of it. Every team just outside of the playoffs thinks they would have got into it. It's got to be decided, hasn't it? And it is it is particularly brutal in League One, but I guess that's the way it goes. Hey, Phil, get, I want to get your take on this. You know, the, the comments that have come out of Tranmere, because they've been relegated by this from League One. And they make a good point in there. And the name of the guy escapes me. It's the guy who used to be the uh, FA. Is it Palacios? It's Mark Palacios, yeah. Palacios, sorry there, beg your pardon. He said, it's never, ever going to get voted down to finish like that. You're always going to get the majority that you need in any given division because obviously the top clubs that are guaranteed promotion will vote for points per game. Anyone in the bottom half will also vote for it. The only people that are not going to do is sort of those who are just on the fringes of the playoffs and the ones who are going to get relegated. So it's, is it an unfair system? Can we expect legal action against uh, against the EFL? Michael used a great phrase there, which was that nobody assumes bad form is coming. And and that that is absolutely true. I mean, Palios is right. Uh, but I guess the, the counter argument to that is that you do pay the price if you spent most of the season in the relegation places. And if your squad up until that point has been inadequate for the division... The problem League One had was that if it was going to start up again and if it was going to meet the, the kind of EFL deadline for when the season had to finish, which was kind of set by um, Rick Parry as July the 31st, but clearly we've playoff final in the championship is going to take place later. And I think, again, that's to accommodate the fact that there's no midweek game in, in the first week of the, the restart period. If they were going to meet that, they needed to be back training two, three weeks ago. They needed to be testing two or three weeks ago. So it's been blindingly obvious for that period that they were going to have to accept that the season was ending and ending early and either introduce a points per game model or or declare it null and void because there was no alternative. Playing it out just wasn't possible barring the playoffs, which they, which they will conclude. And I didn't think Palios's idea that you should use multiple seasons to kind of get a fair gauge for the points tally that a team might have was a good suggestion either because clubs um, squads change drastically year to year some will, will shift on players in double figures same players in double figures it, it you cannot compare one season to the next and, and I don't think you should I, I do sympathise with them I do sympathise with Peterborough in particular because it is very very narrow finish but like Michael says everybody makes the assumption that they were about to go on a, a strong run and for McAntony to say you know we could have finished in the top two that potentially they could have done but I'll need to have a look and see how much time Peterborough have actually spent in the top two this season because because, you know, as they say, it, it does even itself out 
a large extent. And you do find that the clubs who go up tend to have been very, you know, very firmly in the mix right the way through. So it's not an ideal situation, but it was never going to be an ideal situation. And there were always going to be winners and losers. I just think that in the top two divisions where the levels of money that you're talking about are more serious and the levels of politics are more serious as well. I think it's a wholly good thing that they are going to try and play out both divisions because it does stop a lot of the arguing, particularly when it comes to promotion and relegation. Credit to Leeds, I think, for the way they've tackled the refund situation around season tickets and, and match day tickets and so on with the chance for you to either support the academy or get a, you know credit on account and stuff. I mean, we covered it off in quite a lot of detail in our podcast earlier on in the week, so there's probably no need to go over the full ground of it again. The one thing that we have seen, the latest development, is the option of these crowdies where you can get a cutout into the stadium. And Leeds fans, should we say noted for having a mischievous streak? I think that's probably the fairest way to uh, to describe it. We might see one or two interesting characters lurking around in the East End. To follow the NRL in Australia, I've so far seen um, Dominic Cummings and Harold Shipman at various games, um, despite the travel ban. So, yeah, you you do wonder who's going to show up in that. And you do, yeah, I, I suspect that some people will be um, very honourable with it. And well, there was a there was a tweet yesterday on Twitter that was suggesting that people do use the, the crowdie to, to do the face of Albert Johansson just as part of the Black Lives Matters movement. Um, but there will be, like you say, other people who are mischievous with this. And I think not only at Leeds, but any any other club that do it, part of the um, the post-match experience of any of these matches will be picking out the faces uh, in the crowd that are going to give the Daily Mail um, a bit of um, a bit of action to chew on for the next 24 hours. I mean, Michael, you said that anything that involves you parting with money, you're unlikely to do. 25 quid to get your head or somebody else's head sat in Ellen Road? It's worth it, isn't it? I mean, it's part of the package with the games and the retail voucher and everything. It's it's got a certain temptation to it. I have to say, I don't think um, quite. I'd like to say I quite enjoyed some of the suggestions that we could have Norman Hunter and Albert Johansson and people like that in the crowd. I wouldn't probably go for anything too mischievous. Well, it, it would be tempting to put a Bates in there just for the uh, just for a bit of devilment. But yeah, I think um, I won't want to be the person checking through the the selections anyway. You could do Ken Bates commentary as well. I don't think anyone wants that. <laughs> I mean, quite apart from the mischievous angle, I saw a lovely tweet from uh, Marsha Smith, who's lost their dad some years ago and is putting a crowdie of her dad back into Ellen Road. And she tweeted to say that her dad's going to be back in the stadium for the first time since 1988, which I think is really nice. It is. And, and it's just a, a really novel idea and the sort of thing that would, would not be happening um, had we not had this this shutdown. And there haven't been many upsides of, of the shutdown. But if you, you're looking for the kind of good aspects of it or the different aspects of it, then, then this would be one of them. I, I think with the season ticket refunds, I think the main thing was firstly to get the announcement done very quickly after the, the restart was announced. But secondly, to make sure that there was the option of a pro rata refund in there so that if you don't want to donate to the academy and if you don't want to pick up one of these bundles um, that they're offering and nobody is obliged to do either if you do want your money back then then you can have it and and that in as the sort of basis of any set of options that they were putting together that had to be in there and it's it's really good that it is fingers crossed that LUTV works eh? fingers crossed not only LUTV but I follow as well I think that the EFL's streaming service I, I think there will be a lot of pressure on on all of it and a, a big test coming up so we'll see murder ball it's a word we use quite often on this podcast we hear about it quite a lot we're going to have a little chat now about what it is. And you've done an article on this. You've done a piece on it, Phil, which is great. Good readers that on The Athletic. By the way, the 30-day free trial, sign up for it and you can have a read of that. Murder ball, so-called because, well, it's murder. It's awful. Players don't like it, but tell us about the history. 
I wanted to find out if there was any history, and, and I assumed there had to be because it wouldn't be like Bielsa to roll up at least as much as he is innovative and, and things do change under him. It wouldn't be like him to turn up and suddenly invoke this session at the drop of a hat, just a, a kind of fresh idea to that extent. You, you got the sense with with the way the players talk about it and how tough it is that this has been going on for a long time. And I mean, I think everybody will know what the basic concept of Modderball is. It's the midweek session that Leeds do when they don't have a midweek game. If they're playing Saturday, Saturday to Saturday, every Wednesday, they'll be put through this 11 v 11 exercise where the name of the game is to run yourself as hard as you can and, and you know to physically push yourself. And, and the players talk about it quite a lot. Whenever you joke with them about Bielsa's um, coaching or whenever you ask them about the, the hardest aspect of it, they all talk about Murderball. And, and it's been quite evident through the, the shutdown that when we've spoken to Matthias Cleek and Liam Cooper and Tyler Roberts and others, they've all mentioned it and said, you know what, we're actually at the point where we're missing this now, but we're so bold and so sick of being at home that I wish we could actually get back and and have Bielsa cracking the whip in in the way that he does. So my first part of call was Newell's Old Boys where obviously um, Bielsa worked the very first coaching job back in the the early 1990s Um, and I got in touch with one of his old midfielders a guy called Ricardo Linari who who played under him um, in 91 and and 92 as a sort of opening gambit to say look does this ring any bells you know or did you do anything similar what what do you think of this when I kind of give you the details And, and it was quite interesting that the, well, as I went round Argentina and Spain and, and France metaphorically speaking going round um, as I phoned people uh, or, or messaged them on Twitter everybody knew straight away exactly what it was that you were talking about and everybody had a different name for it and, and there were quirks to it there were tweaks there were slight differences in, in what had happened but it was essentially the same thing as Lunari called it non-stop football um, these hellish sessions where you're just expected to run and run and run and keep your heart rate up flog yourself for for as long as you can and demonstrate to Bielsa not so much your tactical aptitude but the fact that you are physically ready for what he's asking you to do and physically ready to to play at the weekend and little by little kind of piece together a picture of somebody who has been doing this for 30 years as part of his coaching routine and, and has found a way to keep it as modern in 2020 as it was in, in 1990 when he first started. So what exactly is murder ball then? How does it look? It's best. It's best for us to speak about how it looks these days, um, as opposed to, to how it's changed. Although I will, um, I will go back over the, the kind of history of it as well. But what he does at Leeds is he sets his team up eleven v eleven, and there are essentially no fouls. It's it's very volatile. Players can fly into each other. He places his staff and he places balls around the pitch, scatters them all over, so that the staff can get into the players and and keep revving them up. So that any time the ball comes out of play, somebody kicks a ball straight back in and, and the game literally never stops. It just continues and continues until Bielsa calls a halt. And what he does is he breaks it up into segments. So it'll be kind of five or six segments of five minutes. And in those five minutes, the players will play and play and play and play with, without cease. And every now and again, he'll call them in for a very, very quick chat or a very quick bit of guidance. And at the end of each segment, usually he'll mix up the shape as well, just to change the, the flow of the game slightly or to put a little bit more pressure on one side or the other and everybody says that it is that in terms of physicality is absolutely horrendous deep down the players love it because they know that it does really good things for them um, and a few of them will say to you that when they get into championship games they never ever find the sharp intensity of championship matches the same as those segments or those little 11 v 11s that Bielsa stages at Thorpe Arch because it is so hard and it is so relentless you, you can't really catch your breath but when they're doing it they pretty much hate it and that was the other funny thing from you're talking to people in France and Argentina and, and over at um, Athletic Bilbao where um, Bielsa was as well 
there was not a lot of love for it, aside from the fact that everybody realised that it was in their best interests. So how does it differ from a game then? Is is it that a game is a little bit more kind of explosive stop-start, but then Murder Ball is just this relentless kind of non-stop output? Very much so. I mean, the session itself, the Murder Ball session is shorter than um, than a, a proper championship game. It doesn't run for 90 minutes. And that was certainly the same at um, Bilbao as well. I spoke to um, Andoni. Iriola, who was a, a, a right back at Bilbao while Bielsa was manager there and, and he said that it didn't last for as long as a La Liga match but it was an awful lot harder and an awful lot more tiring and the reason for that is that you don't in, in championship games if for example you ever look at uh, the classic statistic of how often was the ball in play how often was the ball out of play and you sometimes find that the ball was out of play for an awful lot of, of the 90 minutes and in those those periods you get breathers you're able to catch your breath a little bit and you're able to recover there are stages of the game where if you're a defender for example the game's all up the other end of the field so you're only really having to sweep up and, and to clean up and, and not to, to get involved in a really hard aggressive way whereas in, in mother ball everybody is expected to go at it um, for as long as the as long as the session lasts and everybody he does because you know that Bielsa's lineup at the weekend and, and his general attitude towards individual players is dictated pretty heavily by what he sees, by the, the stats that they have, but the stats they produce, the, the distance that they cover and, and the intensity of their sprints and, and the effort they put in. It's, it's absolutely crucial. And I mean, it's not a secret at least that if you can't hack Motherball or if you don't impress in Motherball, you'll be a mile from the first team. You just won't, you won't get a look in. It's, it's almost like the exercise that Bielsa that he values most above all others. And it is extremely hard. And Iriola said to me at Bilbao, he said, we used to all remember to eat a huge big bowl of rice the night before because Bielsa makes you empty the tank. And it really, really was that exhausting. It's it's absolutely not a myth that it's as hard as it sounds. Are there any concessions in it for for certain players? Like I'm just thinking of someone like Pablo Hernandez, who's in his mid-30s now, or even thinking back to players at other clubs, people like Ledley King, who've not been able to train very much due to the injuries they've been carrying and stuff. Is there is there an exception to it, or is it are you, if you're in the squad, are you doing it? If you're in the squad, you're doing it. I think the same caveats apply that if if there's a worry about your fitness, or if say for example, while Augustine was trying to get over his his initial hamstring strain, even when he was back to the point of running or doing light training, there's simply no way in the world that he'd be risked in a in a multiple session because the likelihood is that that he wouldn't be up to it. To the best of my knowledge, Hernandez has to take part the same as everybody else. Although I know that they have over the past couple of years managed Hernandez slightly differently, or, or be more conscious of the fact that he is into his thirties now and he is. You know, he isn't a, a much older player than a lot of players in the squad, but no, it's a it's a requirement and it's a, a prerequisite for being part of the team and, and being heavily involved. You you have to be up to it. What do you think we take from the fact that Bielsa seems to place more stock on performance in Murder Ball than anything else? Is it that output is the king? I think it is. I think it's the realization that minus the output, none of the tactical ideas none of the tactical work none of the none of the tactical strategy is going to work because the players won't have the legs or the fitness to to carry it off um, and both um, Iriola and Lunari said there was there was no tactics to this at all. Like, Lunari said that at, at Newell's Old Boys they didn't have corners, they didn't have throw-ins. Bielsa just wasn't interested in that in this session because all he wanted to see was how long you could keep going for. Um, and equally, every session became harder as they did the drills. It became tougher and tougher. And it was to make sure that they'd be able to cope with the really sort of high-pressing, high-pressure system that, that Bielsa liked to play. I, I think... 
What I find, I mean, there's there's an awful lot about Bielsa that I find incredibly impressive, but I think it's the ability to not only be as tactically astute and clever as he is, but also to be able to push the players in the way that he does to make sure that they they can carry out his his instructions to the to the letter. It's it's very difficult to do that, and I, I thought it was quite telling that Iriola is is now a coach in the, the Spanish second division. And I was asking him, were you ever tempted to replicate these games? If you know, if they worked for Bielsa, did you not think they they might work for you? And he said, I did take some of his drills. You know, I did copy some of his drills. I did take some of that with with me but these particular games I could never do and and he was basically implying that only Bielsa could get away with them you know only Bielsa knows how to structure the week so that you can have these horrendously intense matches midway through and not kill the players not injure them not kind of sap the energy from them so that they're struggling at the weekend it works for him but it's totally unique in the way that he's totally unique and um, yeah Iriola just said as far as I'm concerned I don't think anybody else could use these they're, they're kind of his baby and, and his alone why is that though? What what is it about Bielsa specifically that makes him one of the few people who could get this out of a, any squad of players? I think respect comes into it and, and that goes beyond motherboard as far as I'm concerned. I think the demands on the players to lose weight, the amount of body fat and weight they had to shed when he first came in, the pressure that he puts on them, the, the absence of almost any days off in, in the first month of the season um, in, in his first year, it is extremely demanding. And I think you have to be a certain type of manager to make those demands of players and for players to respond well to it. I, I think one of the reasons why it's worked so well at Leeds is because it's Bielsa. I think if you put other less experienced or less proven or I guess less impressive managers onto the training pitch up there and ask them to implement the same strategy and the same structure of training you might hear a lot of grumbling in the background you might have a lot of unhappy players you might have players who get to the level of being so tired that, that they down tools but that's never going to happen in the championship with Bielsa because he's, he's so much bigger than, than anybody else he's got a definite aura and, and real authority about him and I have often wondered how it would go for him um, in the Premier League where he'd be dealing you know, potentially with players with bigger egos and perhaps players who are a bit harder to keep happy a bit higher maintenance and I think that's probably what Iriola was, was touching on that not everybody can ask that of footballers. You know, there's probably a certain select group of coaches who can push them to, to those extremes and get a good response. And Iriola was almost suggesting, I I felt, that if he tried to do it, it wouldn't go down well. But because it's Bielsa, it's, it's not a problem. Do you think maybe that's why he's never ended up at like one of the so-called, and I use the term with, in air quotes, but big clubs? I can't answer that. I really don't know. Um, and there is the story about him um, rejecting an offer from Real Madrid, which would argue arguably have been as, as big a move as, as any manager can get. But it does surprise me, given his his reputation and given the way that other elite coaches think about him and speak about him, that there hasn't been this magnet when it comes to your really top clubs and your, your richest clubs. And I do sometimes wonder if it is because of the eccentricity, if it is because of the fact that he can, you know, he can be a difficult character, he can be quite hard to please he you know he can be extremely demanding sometimes to a fault I guess there are probably other coaches who are who are easier to work with and I, I used the, the phrase high maintenance previously but perhaps coaches who are not as high maintenance as Bielsa would be but it does seem to be one of the mysteries with him really that he, he does have this terrific attitude towards football he does have this great success when it comes to moulding really interesting and, and fascinating teams to watch but then I guess on the flip side as well it, there is a track record of somebody who doesn't stick for a long time and somebody whose teams have been prone from time to time to, to blow themselves out and perhaps it's just the case that elite clubs like to think that, that when they appoint a manager and, and move in a different direction that they're signing themselves up to a, a much longer project 
Michael, we had a chat off air earlier on about um, keeping fit because I was just saying to, to Michael, I've just started doing the, the couch to 5K and we were just moaning like a pair of moaners basically saying, God, it hurts your knees, doesn't it? Running and stuff like that when you get to a certain age. And if anybody's done couch to 5K, it's the sort of get you off the couch and get you running up to three miles constant, uh, consistently over the course of a couple of months. And you do, you know, three fairly gentle runs per week and you gradually increase your workload. And I'm, I'm on the second week now and you've only got to run for 90 seconds at a time. And Michael, you were telling me about you'd seen some training routine and he nearly had his crying. What was it? Um, it was Tyler Roberts in one of the Ask Tyro sessions the club's been running when he was saying one of the running sessions they've been given to do from home, which is not something you can cheat on either because I think they're all tracked and they have to they're sort of monitor down the bit. It was, it was four minutes as fast as you can twice, then three minutes, then two minutes, then one minute. And it was each of them twice. It was basically 20 minutes of sprinting, which the thought of it just makes me want to cry. Does anybody have a couch to the front door? program because I think that's the level I'm at at the moment I've been in absolute fat bastard mode right the way through this lockdown and um, yeah I could do with a, a 20 minute sprint but I think 20 seconds would be pushing it that's Graham Rooney he might have one he, he looks like I do at the minute which is a bit encouraging maybe he could do the couch to 5k <laughs> to get back into this I don't know good good for you though I wish you looked like me because <laughs> there is this kind of perception that training is it's a little bit of a costed existence being a footballer I mean I've always kind of grown up with the impression that you know players came in on a morning they trotted around for an hour or two had everything done for them they get fed they get watered you know they get nutritional plans and then they um, sod off home again in the afternoon and have a lovely time playing uh, FIFA or whatever on their uh, on their consoles so is it as hard as we think under Bielsa or do they have, have a bit of downtime? It is, yeah. He, he hasn't killed them this season in the way that he did last season. It has been slightly, I, I wouldn't say easier, but he, but he has tried to ease off in, in certain respects. Although it, former players of his will always tell you that once you get to this stage of the season, he really that's when he's really getting into your ribs. And that's when, it, as one player once said to me, that's when you kind of love him, but kind of despise him as well, because it's, you're just on the, you know, you're on the final straight and, and that's when his focus really sharpens. But I think training generally has changed quite a lot over the years. Um, I mean, I know there's no love for um, for Lee Trundle and Leeds, particularly after the loan he had here. But when I walked to the Press Association way back at the start of my career, he'd gone from real town to Rex. Uh, it was his, his first professional move and he was scoring a lot of goals for Wrexham and was, was building quite a reputation for himself and I remember doing a feature on him for a magazine and, and him saying at the time he said you know I've, I've kind of gone from training with Rio in the evenings and doing a job and everything else to training with Wrexham in the morning and then in the afternoon you kind of go and play snooker and you do this that and the other and you've got a load of free time and, and it's absolutely great and there is still an element of that I mean clubs generally don't train players for eight hours a day you know it tends to be a morning session but in the modern era players have become much more open and much more aware of the need to do additional gym work and and to make sure that the conditioning is is absolutely spot on all of the players at Leeds say that they've never trained like this and they've never been asked to train like this and probably never will again because it is you know it is Bielsa's regime and there are very very few like it Um, and I think even if you were sceptical about that even if you weren't sure whether to believe them you only have to look at their physical shape and the way they've changed from you know the the Christiansen Heckenbottom season to to the, the Bielsa tenure to see how skeletal some of them look, how thin they all are and, and how well they're looking after each other. And, and I've got to say, you know, that 
the money in football sounds great. You know, I could I could take the money, no problem. But I think when you're as restricted in terms of diet and everything else in, in the way that they are under Bielsa, when you're restricted when it comes to drinking alcohol, I mean, I know there are players there who just stopped drinking completely when Bielsa came in because they, they sensed what was coming and they thought it might be a, a good idea. You do have time and you do have money and, and everything else. And, and I don't think any, but any of them would want to pretend that it's... Um, it's a horrific existence, but there are tough aspects to it and there are really regimented aspects for it. And, and I'll tell you this, between now and, and July the 22nd, for some of them, it's going to be extremely hard. So loads of our listeners are based in Leeds. And if you run a business in Leeds, what better way to promote it than through this show? Uh, just when the football season's making a comeback, we'd love to have you here on the podcast because our listeners are loyal and engaged, just like you. So do get in touch and you can sponsor the Phil Hayes Show and give your business a boost to boot. To advertise on this show, head to theathletic.com forward slash podcast ads UK. Theathletic.com forward slash podcast ads UK. There's a dead simple form on there. Just give us the details of what you're willing to spend to promote your business and The Athletic straight back in touch and you could be sponsoring the Phil Hayes Show in the coming weeks. Well, this week in part three, Phil, whilst we continue to give people the choice of what we're going to talk about, three brilliant options for different reasons. Snodgrass, Gradle and Sommer. The winner, Robert Snodgrass, a favourite at Leeds in recent years, through some particularly dark times. Who would you have voted for, just out of interest? I went for Snodgrass. I did vote in this. Uh, I would have probably gone for Gradle. I didn't vote in it, but I would have probably gone for Gradle or Snodgrass, yeah. All three are, are really interesting tales for, for different reasons, and they're um, completely different people as well. Snodgrass, I mean... The the thing that always stands out for me with Snodgrass is that any time I speak to Eddie Gray about the post-Premier League era, he always says that in his view, Leeds have never had a better player than Snodgrass. And I don't know whether he's changed that view through the um, the Bielsa era. I don't know whether the last two seasons have, have made any difference to that. But he always felt that in terms of natural ability and skill, and, and then once Snodgrass sorted out is you know once he got used to the the pressure and the intensity of professional football physically his ability to carry a team almost single-handedly he's, he, he doesn't think there's been anybody like it and one of the things I always liked about Snodgrass was that even though he defected to Norwich and even though it was Norwich he went to and even though he went at a time when there wasn't a right lot to smile about at Leeds his reputation seems to be intact and, and I don't get the sense that anybody holds that against him a little bit like Luciano Becchio I think almost 100% of people in Leeds understood what he was saying when he effectively said I've had enough you know I'm, I'm fed up with the way things are going at Leeds I don't see much on the horizon and I don't think the promises I'm being made are particularly credible or, or likely to be kept. And it was a sad ending, really. And I, I think he, if you think back over the last 15 years, 16 years, and think about the players who you would have liked to have seen play for Leeds in the Premier League, he certainly falls into that category, along with people like Delph and so on. He was a, he was and is a massively gifted footballer um, and, and a smashing guy to boot. I think it speaks volumes for him that, in this poll, he won it quite clearly. I mean, Sommer got 23.7% of the vote, Gradle 32% and Snoddy with over 44% of the vote. So even the fact that he did defect and he did go to Norwich in the end does show that he's still held in really good regard. And he was a really, really good footballer. I loved watching him. And the fact that he stuck around in the Premier League when so many of these players who've kind of left us from the, uh, the lower division years have not really managed to stick at it. In the top flight, I know Beckford had a, a sort of a short spell, but then kind of sort of fell away quite quickly as well. But Snodgrass is still there. I think the thing with Snodgrass when he left was that, as Phil said, he left at a point where if the fans had had a choice to leave, we probably would have done as well. And in, in truth, a lot of fans <laughs> did leave. Like the attendances are right down by the time he left because 
we'd seen what was a very talented squad that he was part of completely disintegrate. And by the time he left, I think he was pretty much the only bit of actual Premier League talent we had left in that team. I think the one thing people probably don't realise or, or have never been able to fully acknowledge with with um, Snodgrass is the kind of difficult start that he had. He, he grew up in, in Gallagher in Glasgow, um, stones throw really from, from Celtic Park. And I don't think it was an easy upbringing for him. And he... Um, he actually, I mean, his, his talent was very obvious because he had the offer of a, a scholarship at, at Celtic, which he said no to. He didn't think that, that he'd be able to break through at Celtic. And if you go back to the point at which he was starting to get into scholarship age, they had um, Henrik Larsson, they had Petrov, they had Lambert. Sutton, um, Lubo Moravchik, players like that. It, it did look like a, a difficult club to for a, a young kid to to get a chance at. But there was also the story of him saying no to a trial at Barcelona. Um, Blackburn Rovers were interested, but he didn't fancy it. And, and in the end, he rolled up at Livingston, which um, just to the, the west of Edinburgh, Philly, new club that were kind of um, born out of Meadowbank Thistle, who died years and years and years ago. A good 10 years ago now, after he joined, I got in touch with Alan Preston, who'd been his first manager um, at Livingston. And he spoke about Snodgrass turning up late for training. He said, these were his words, I don't know whether this is true, but from time to time, Snodgrass would turn up intoxicated. He spoke about one of um, Snodgrass's very, very first games for Livingston, where Snodgrass turned up literally about 10 or 15 minutes before kickoff. And Preston said to him, where have you been? You know, you, you were supposed to be here for the warm-up. We've gone through that. I've given all my tactical stuff. I, you know, what's going on? And to which Snodgrass gave him a sort of confused look and said, well, the game kicks off in 10 minutes and I'm here, you know, I'll be stripped and I'll, I'll be ready. And I think it did take a while, a long while, for Snodgrass to get his head into the mould of a professional footballer as opposed to a kid in Glasgow who was very, very good at football but liked to knock about and, and do the things that kids at 16 or 17 do. And I don't know whether Snodgrass would agree with this, but Preston felt that the saving grace for him in terms of his career was coming south to England because he was able to get away from I don't think the, I don't think he was in trouble I don't think it was anything like that but I think it was things like you know alcohol women you know that that type of thing down in England he was able to just focus on the football he was able to focus on his career and Preston certainly thought that that it was you know it was the right move for him at the right time coming to Leeds and when you look back and you look at how well Snodgrass has done down south you have to say that it was definitely the making of him same story as you really Phil coming to England to escape the women that's right just minus any talent I just want to double check, Phil, just when I clip a little bit for a quote for this show, I want to just clarify and get this on record. You're saying women are trouble. (laughs) I wouldn't dare. (laughs) Who was it who at Leeds who first uh, tried to sign him then? Was it a McAllister thing or was it uh, something that someone that scouted uncovered? He was a player who McAllister knew an awful lot about and and he was also a player who was going very, very cheap. We were never told the exact value of the transfer fee, but we were told it was less than £100,000. There was a lot of interest in Snodgrass's ability, but I think there was a feeling that he needed to be honed and he was a long way from being the finished article. And and admittedly, he was was very young, so that kind of goes without saying. But if you think of the way that Delft settled into League One um, when he was given his debut by McAllister. And and basically, the periods of that season started looking like a Premier League player um, every time Leeds went to Brighton or to Leighton Orient or whatever else and, and was duly signed by Aston Villa. He was a kind of polished academy player. He was, he was ready for that. Whereas with Snodgrass, there were a lot of rough edges that needed to be tidied up. But McAllister, I mean, I did an interview last week with A.D. White and, and I was saying that one of McAllister's great strengths, and obviously he, he ran into 
difficulties as, as Leeds manager. He, he didn't cope well with it in the end and it didn't work out. But one of his big strengths was spotting kids with a lot of talent. So he did it with Delph. I mean, Delph was pretty much promoted to first team training as soon as McAllister got through the door. A.D. White was another one. He was only 16. He, he barely signed scholarship forms, but McAllister looked at him, saw his pace, saw what he can do and thought, I'm, I'm going to give him a go. And likewise with Snodgrass, I think um, he could see what was there and, and he could see what Leeds would have if they were able to if they were able to develop it. And I still think when you reflect that when he went to Norwich in 2012, he, he went for £3 million. It was a woeful fee. I mean, it just so far below the ability of somebody like that and, and somebody with a left foot like that. But Leeds got him as an absolute steal. And, and I have to say, I, I had heard of him because of my interest in Scottish football, but I knew nothing about him, absolutely nothing at all. I had no idea whether he was going to be a good signing or, or whether or not he was going to be another, another of these deals that Leeds seemed to do fairly often back in that period which didn't look like it would be particularly exciting and, and ultimately wasn't. But he he is, I, I don't think Eddie Gray's far wrong in saying he's just about as good as we've seen in the past 15 years. What do you think he brought to the team then, Robert Snodgrass, when he was playing at Leeds? Total confidence. He He's one of these players, and you don't see them very often, that seems to be confident in playing at any level that he claims to. So if he's in League One, he's fine. If he's in the Championship, he's fine. If you bump him up to the Premier League, he's fine. And I do think that he would just keep going and going and going. I mean, there has to be a ceiling somewhere for him, but he never seemed to doubt that he could play at, at any level. And I think because of that, he, he did have the ability to carry leads in periods where everything seemed to be going wrong or where they were desperate for, for something to happen. I mean, you'll remember the T-shirts from back then, Keep Calm and, and Pass to Snodgrass. Even Glenn Snodgrass, I was talking to him uh, a while back for a, a feature that I wrote. He was Grayson's assistant um, at Leeds. And, and Glenn was saying, I can't deny that there were periods where we'd be playing poorly or it wouldn't be working or we'd be under pressure. And you would stand on the sideline and think, somebody just give it to Rob because if you give it to Snodgrass, something would probably happen. And Becchio said that as well. Becchio, when I interviewed him, he picked out Snodgrass. He said he talked a lot about his relationship with Beckford, but he says Snodgrass was the guy who could lay it on a plate from the wing. Snodgrass was the guy who always knew which run I was going to go for. He always knew what my movement was going to be, where I was going to position myself. And he always knew that you were going to get, you were going to get a good ball from him. And it was sad to see, it really was sad to see him go because again, you just felt that you were losing another player, another really, really quality player. But at the same time, in that summer of 2012, I, like a lot of other people, felt that Leeds were bedding in for a fairly long stretch of, of mediocre championship seasons. And I do think it was by far the best thing in, in Snodgrass' interest to um, go to Norwich and, and to take himself off to the Premier League. It was interesting, I think, how Snodgrass grew into that team because he started out as a, a almost a bit part player from wide, and then by the time he left, I think possibly due to the absence of other people, we essentially built a whole team around him. It had to got to the past the Snodgrass approach because he was he had he was a, no longer a fringe player, but the only good player we had left. And when he left, it was essentially the signal for me that yes, we have given up on ever getting promoted. An interesting thing you just said then about the idea of just past the Snodgrass and makes me wonder is football really that simple because people do say it's a simple game do you just give it to the talented guy is there a is there a just pass it to Pablo aspect of Leeds United I have heard Southampton players saying about Letitia that Alan Ball did basically say that in training it was just get it to Letitia as soon as possible as much as possible and see what he can do with it I would have to go back and watch 
Maradona with Argentina in close detail but I, I would suspect that any time they were in any trouble the answer was um, give the ball to Diego and, and let him do his thing I mean, this kind of takes us back to Bielsa and Bielsa's attitude which is the complete opposite to that you know he doesn't believe in any circumstances that the answer to a poor performance or a a scoreline where you're behind should be to rely on one person on, on the contrary he thinks the team should work in that instance and, and the whole plan should come together and, and it goes back to what I've said previously about Raquel May at Argentina why Bielsa wasn't big on Raquel May because that was essentially Raquel May's game give me the ball I'll I'll do a bit of magic I'll cut the, the opposition to shreds and we'll all go home and have a pint and that just wasn't how Bielsa wanted to work he wanted everybody to be on exactly the same page but I think at Leeds it, it had got to the stage where there wasn't enough around Snodgrass to expect the team to play as they had when you had Snodgrass and Gradle and Housen and Becchio you know it, it was starting to fall apart and, and and that was why players like Housen and, and Snodgrass and then latterly Becchio as well were starting to tire of being at Leeds and I had no doubt at all that Snodgrass was, was very happy at Leeds you know that he'd, he'd been happy in his previous years there that he'd, he'd been very grateful for the chance he'd, he'd had at the club but I was digging out some old quotes from him in, in the summer of 2012 when he was clearly getting fed up and, and was clearly losing patience and he said basically that the Bates had offered him, had made him promises about what was going to come, you know, what was going to happen in that season, stick around and, and you know, we'll potentially go up. And Warnock had made him captain and everything else. And, and he said, the chairman's trying to put a bit of pressure on me and he's telling me what plans he has for the club. But they told me the same type of plans the season before and it didn't work out. So it's hard to buy into these things again. And if you think about it, it was actually very rare to hear players speak out against the club like that. People, I, I always got the sense that, that they were afraid of Bates and they didn't want to cross him and they didn't want to say anything which might come back to hurt them uh, and I think you can read into that A that, that Snodgrass just wanted to be brutally honest about it but B that he probably realised that he was on the way out and, and that he wouldn't be sticking around and you know likewise Warnock had said to him be my captain you know get us up this that and the other but Snodgrass just said you know, I'm, I'm not convinced actually that Warnock's going to be there for that long and, and in the end Warnock didn't even see out a full season and, and he said nice um, third person chat here but my future doesn't lie in the hands of Neil Warnock it's in the hands of Robert Snodgrass and I think that's just common sense really it shows a good level of intelligence in Snodgrass that he was able to see what was coming he was able to see the woods for the trees and, and ultimately and I do think players there are times when players should definitely do this it ultimately he was able to look after himself and very much a symptom of the whole Bates era that it felt for such a long time, for so many years, that the goodwill of the fans was kind of hanging by a thread at all times. Whereas you contrast it with now, and actually it's taken a little bit of um, time and, you know, there are still times when the club do things that you might not agree with and it damages the goodwill a little bit. I mean, like you think about the badge, for example, where they pretended to consult the fans but didn't quite. But still, they've built up a lot of credit, I think, with the fans now, the current regime, in appointing Bielsa and you know, the money that Rajazani has put into the club. But that was never, never felt like that was really the case with Bates. It, it, it grew quite old pretty quickly. You always felt like somebody was going to was going to kick you in the teeth before long. I mean, the, the last I saw of Snodgrass in, in a Leeds kit or training kit was on pre-season in Cornwall. Warnock always took his teams down to Cornwall and still does because that, that's where he lives. Uh, and he ran this open training session on what was a kind of, well, it was a field of straw really um, in, in Cornwall. And it, it was, the fans were allowed to come in and, and huge groups of them came along to that and, and watched. And, you know, the, the Leeds just went through a kind of, I don't think it was 11 v 11, but it was just a, an in-house game. Um, just to entertain people and there was a telltale sign at the end of it which was that all the players went to get back on the bus apart from Snodgrass who Warnock said to him you with me 
And uh, Warnock uh, went and got in his car, Snodgrass jumped into the driver's seat and they sped off. And, and they were evidently at the point there of discussing the fact that Norwich were were offering for him and, and wanted to sign him. And the, the deal when the move to Norwich was done the following afternoon. And you, it, you're right, it, it did just feel like here are these hundreds stroke thousands of supporters going down to Cornwall, you know, to, to follow pre-season and everything else. And the next day the, the star man is being sold. And that was kind of symptomatic of that entire era. Interesting to hear him speak about Neil Warnock in those terms because you can't hear that and kind of go, well, do you know what? I disagree with you. You kind of find yourself nodding along going, yeah, I wouldn't really, speaking personally, want my future as a footballer in the hands of Warnock. What do we think that says about about Warnock? I think as much as anything is Snodgrass could see the state the club was in and that it was Warnock was there through the GFH takeover and he was probably able to see not so much that Warnock was necessarily a bad manager but just that no one was going to stick around and no one could survive in the environment of Leeds United at that time. It was a, it, it well, it had been and became an even more toxic place. Well, I think it says that, that at the time, nobody nobody had much faith in what was going on at all. And Snodgrass's rationale would essentially have been, I've got 10 years ahead of me. You know, I, I need to I need to do the right things by my own career now. I would love to know whether in the plans that were promised to him by Bates, whether GFH or a takeover came up at, at any stage during that, because that was kind of all going on at the time. Um, and, and whether there was any any firm promises made about what was going to happen, given that the GFH takeover and their, their subsequent time as owners was a, an absolute debacle. And likewise with Warnock, you could see from the very start that there was always going to be the potential issue of Warnock versus the fans, not in the way that there was with Dennis Wise, who was just never, ever going to be popular. But it, there was always that underlying resentment between Leeds fans and Warnock, which could easily have been blown away had everything gone brilliantly, but was always kind of under the surface and, and was threatening to blow up, you know, latterly and, and did, you know, away to Barnsley and, and in other games. And I don't think many of us felt like it was going to be a long-term thing with Warnock. I think we all genuinely thought that it would probably be a one-season hit and if it didn't work, he'd go. And if it did work, then they'd, they'd go up into the Premier League. But from Snodgrass's point of view, where's the appeal in being told by a manager who might be gone after one year that you should stick around and try and get up? I mean, don't you just find yourself in the, the same situation a year down the line? And he almost alluded to that himself where he said, you know, I've been made these promises before and nothing's ever come of them um, and it must have been in his head to think do I really want to waste another 12 months here and, and the added jeopardy as well of do I want to turn down a transfer when it's on the table in the hope that there will be one you know of similar offer or, or a better offer next summer because that's never a given and, and it's never guaranteed and it only takes one like people say you're only as good as your, your last game when it comes to transfers you're usually only as good as your last season or your last half season I mean if, if Snodgrass had kind of stumbled into some poor form in, in that year and it was not a great year for Leeds um, then it, it might have diminished his value and I still think looking back he, he absolutely did the right thing and yeah it's very much framed by that rampant short termism at, at Leeds at the time with particularly Bates coming towards the end of his reign I think it's fair comment to assume that you know money was pretty tight around that time particularly once the East Stand was done there's not much left over for uh, players and the like is there so we got to a point where it was it was sell to buy but we're being told otherwise so you can't really blame him the disappointment with that team was that we almost, whether it was by good scouting, good coaching, or just chance, but we we managed to somehow assemble a really good attacking lineup for essentially not a lot of money. You're talking about 100 grand for Snodgrass, Beckford, 50 grand, Becchio for free. Now, these were players that we we chanced upon, and then because of a, a lack of will to back them and to pay them properly, we just allowed the whole thing to fall apart. And thankfully, things are a lot better now. Then, and I think we're on to we're on to happier times. One of the things that we did say a few weeks ago, Phil, was that we, we thought that Leeds as a club 
has not been a very happy club for quite a long time until recently. And it's good that we now see things in a far more positive light. Yeah, and, and I think... I think it's always the case that the dissatisfaction of the, the supporters does seep through to the dressing room. I think there will have been players who've passed through who, who won't have cared particularly what the public thought or, or how they felt. But I think in order to properly enjoy being at Leeds, you, you need to have a, a happy crowd with you and you need to have a, a crowd who are engaged and are in, enthusiastic. And I, I think in Snowgrass's period at the club, they, they had that in 09-10, they had it in 10-11, you know, right up until the end when the results went went but there was just that little sense of something building of and then finally some some impetus coming after so many so many bleak years but it was short lived and and I guess the evidence is there in the number of players who decided that, it, that ultimately it wasn't for them. You know, when, when Howson was pushed and was told, you either go to Norwich or you sign a new contract, he, he went to Norwich. You know, when Snodgrass was asked to stay on for another year, he, he went to Norwich. When Becchio, at the point where he was scoring 19 goals in half a season and was still the, the only real source of them, you know, at the point where he was needed, he left for Norwich. You know, Grado went to France. And OK, Grado, there are big family issues with Grado. He has a lot of, a lot of dependents who, who rely on him heavily. Um, and, and I don't doubt that was partly to do with it as well. But again, there just wasn't the incentive there to think, I might as well stick around because the chances are Leeds are, are going to get promoted. And I do get the sense now of players who actually really, really enjoy playing for the club. And I think it's very easy to say that you do, but it's far more difficult to actually feel like you do because of the pressure that you're under and because of the, the weight of 15 years of, of pretty abject football. So without any doubt, whatever happens this season, mentally and, and emotionally, the club are in a, a far, far better place. Beautiful stuff. And it'd be nice if you managed to get a chance to catch up with Robert Snodgrass maybe in the next few years, maybe when he's coming towards the end of his career and see how he looks back on it and looks back on his time at Leeds. Is that something you'd ever do? Well, as it happens, I think another of my colleagues is in the process of doing a piece with him. So that's something to look out for. And he'll definitely be asked about Bates. He'll definitely be asked about what went on at Leeds. And, and I'll be very interested to see what he says, you know, with hindsight, whether he's a bit more cautious or guarded about it or whether he, you know, whether he dishes it out where he thinks that things need to be said. Because um, he was always very vocal um, and very honest. But he was a funny guy as well, was Snowgrass. I, I remember getting a phone call from the press officer at Leeds who was um, getting pranked by I'm pretty sure it was Snodgrass and Johnson who kept phoning him repeatedly with different accents to say um, that they'd been told by Phil Hay that um, they were in, they could get free tickets if they just gave the press officer a call. And he used to pull pranks like that all the time. He's, he's still still a joker in, in the same sense. Becky always said that about him. He said there was nobody who was a better laugh in the changing room than Snodgrass. Can I just check? Does that work? Give it a go. Well, we look forward to reading that um, article on Snoddy on The Athletic and all your stuff's on there as well. Phil, what can we see there this week? We've got um, a multiple piece on, obviously, today. Um, we're going to do some analysis of the strikers' situation um, now that Augustine looks like he may well miss the back end of the season, where that leaves Leeds, and also asking the question of where it leaves the deal with Leipzig. Um, and also, coming up next week, we'll be looking, obviously, very heavily at the start of the new season. And also, in the background, coming shortly, uh, interview with Stephen McPhail, um, Super McPhail and his wonderful left foot with a story about a phone call from Venus Williams. Interesting. We look out for that one. And you can read all that stuff on The Athletic with a 30-day free trial that's there. Up for grabs at the minute, all ready for when the football returns. All the podcasts are on there ad-free as well. Theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. And gents, what a great thing to look forward to. This show next week, we get to talk about the actual football properly. Terrifying. 
terrifying actually is the the kind of vibe I've been getting from people as soon as the fixtures were announced um, earlier this week there was that realisation that it was no longer sort of hypothetical conversations about um, will it be PPG Um, will we just uh, return and wipe the league out Um, but as Adam Forshaw says it's a formality so don't worry let's hope so let's hope so thanks for listening to this one we'll speak to you next week ta-ra The Phil Hay Show 